This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So welcome. I think this is the second huh, of the lecture series of our mini medical school on mindfulness. Um, I'm Dr. Kevin Barrows. I'm the speaker for tonight, and I'm the director of our mindfulness-based stress reduction program at the Osher Center. And... Um, I'm looking forward to doing this with you. I really like this topic, and I think it's important. Um, and I, I chose this uh, uh, title intentionally, and maybe at the end of the, of the lecture, it'll become clear a little bit more what I'm, what I'm after with that title. Um, so before we start thinking and talking and jabbing and stuff, I think we should just do some mindfulness. So I'm going to invite you. I'm going to sit in this chair, and I'm going to invite you to, with me for about five minutes. We'll do an exercise together. Um, okay, so for this one, um, like I said, just a few minutes worth, and you want to make sure you're comfortable, nothing special, just, just comfortable, and I'll be speaking for the, for the whole five minutes or so, and so if you feel comfortable closing your eyes, that would be ideal, so just let yourself relax, and you want to be in a, a symmetrical, comfortable posture so that your body's not straining. You might discover a minute or two into it that you're leaning one way or the other, and so your body's exerting itself in some way. So see if you can find right now a position that's comfortable and symmetrical. And the only other posture tip I'd like to give you for this is your spine. You, you want your spine to be a little bit erect, a little bit upright, um, and you want to avoid, if possible, the slumping or flexing forward because that actually has an effect on the mind. It actually kind of dulls the mind and, and makes it... Um, uh, less sharp, a little bit more prone to sleepiness. So just letting yourselves settle in for a moment. I'm going to pull out my magic uh, meditation bell. Guaranteed to work. So I'll ring the bell once as we begin, and then when we get to the end, uh, I'll ring it three times, a little louder each time, so we can come out of our session gently. So what I'd like us to do for the next few minutes is just tune in to our breath. And you can feel your breath in a lot of different places. You may have already experimented with this. But let's choose for now, let's just choose the belly, the abdomen. And you'll notice that as you breathe, there's some movement in your abdomen. And notice that I'm not asking you to breathe in any particular way. We're just bringing our attention to the breath as it naturally exists, as it naturally flows for you right now. Noticing especially the movement that the breath creates in the belly. See if you can keep your attention on your breath. Just feeling your breath is all you need to do. See if you can do that for one full breath cycle. So the in, 
the inhalation. And for some people, there's a little tiny pause before the exhalation. Not everybody, though. And then follow the exhalation. And then for most people, there is a longer pause between the exhalation and the next inhalation. So see if you can just be feeling your belly for the fullness of one breath cycle. When you finish the breath cycle, your, your abdomen might be still for a moment, and that's a very common time for your mind to wander off. So the trick to try to put you know, two or three breaths together is to keep your awareness in the belly even when it's not moving. So after the exhale and there's that pause before the next inhale starts, see if you can just keep your awareness in the belly where it was while you were breathing, And then be there for the birth of the next breath, that second breath. Notice how probably your mind has wandered And just notice it. That's all there is to it. And come back. Come back to the belly. Just feeling the movement of the belly with your breathing. Seeing if you can follow the breath all the way through once, even twice. And again, if you've wandered, just come back to the breath and double-check that your body is relaxed, at least where it can be relaxed, if there's unnecessary tension being held somewhere. See if you can let it go. Let yourself be at ease, especially if that spine is straight. You can, you can pretty much let your body just support itself. And as you continue to follow the breath, just for another minute or so, notice the distractions. Notice how your, your thoughts, even though you're, you're probably really trying in earnest to do this, your mind is really not under your control. It, it produces thoughts that are, that are unbidden. And there are also sounds that might distract you. Your mind might go pay attention to those sounds. There might be physical sensations elsewhere in your body that distract you. Whatever the distraction is, see if you can notice that you've wandered and just come back. We'll make a rule right now. You don't have to attend to the distractions. Just come back to that belly, to the breath.
then for the last part of this exercise, I'm going to ask you some questions to, um, to refine even further your attention. So as you're feeling this breath, just notice we're in the belly, but notice if you feel it in other places, the movement of breath, other places that you might not expect, like the shoulders or the pelvis or your back. One last time, if your mind has wandered, come back, back to the breath in the belly. See if it's possible. See if it's true, as some experienced meditators say, that no two breaths are exactly alike. See if you can notice the, the length, the, the quality, coarseness, fineness, smoothness, roughness. I'll ring the bell three times, just a little louder each time to bring us out. But until then, just keep tracking that breath, feeling that breath in the belly, letting it be something actually easy for you. Then whenever you're ready, you can let yourself gently open your eyes and do it really slowly if you haven't done it already. Not like the usual, just popping your eyes open. Go really slowly and see what that's like to suddenly have vision again and how that stimulates you. All right. So one of my favorite things is to, um, to listen, to hear about your experience with this. But not that one. That was just a little... A little quick one to just get us here. Um, later tonight, um, I want to do a longer one with you and really sort of go into it and hear about your experience with that. Um, okay, so here's our outline. So we've already done our exercise number one. I thought we should figure out what is mindfulness anyway. Um, and then you've probably noticed in, in um, the sort of explosion of popularity uh, and all the places that mindfulness is, is popping up. So we'll talk a little bit about all the different places. Uh, it used to just be um, healthcare and spiritual retreat centers, and now it seems to be everywhere. 
um, and then of course talk about it in healthcare. We this is what we do. This is this is UCSF and Osher Center, and so we'll talk about that. Look at some of the research. Um, I, I I'm going to emphasize, however, sort of practical clinical um, mindfulness in this presentation because you're going to have such outstanding lecturers. I mean, you already had Rick Heck last week, who's one of the top mindfulness researchers in the country. And um, next week, you're going to have Helen Wang, who studies the effect on the brain. So you're going to get lots of great research stuff. And I think I'm going to focus more on real world doing mindfulness in your, in your experience, in your body, in your, in your bones. Um, and I want to talk about mindfulness-based stress reduction. And even if, how many people have already um, gone through mindfulness-based stress reduction? It's an eight-week program. Good, good. Okay, so I hope that's, that even for you that'll be useful. Just kind of dissect that a little bit and look at it from this different perspective. Um, and it is, it is probably the most common way that people get mindfulness training now. So for those of you who are interested in you know, doing some mindfulness training yourself, this would be of interest. Um, and then we'll do this longer exercise that I look forward to with you. And then last of all, and I think most important of all, um, I don't want to miss the big picture. So we can talk about mindfulness research, and we can talk about all the cool things and how interesting, and we can in- understand it and read about it and all. But but what are we actually talking about here? Putting putting it in context of our of our experience, our lives as human beings. What what are we? What's going on here? What are we talking about? So so let's build um, um, a kind of a um, a definition, or maybe it's a description of mindfulness. And I love starting very generally. And so I start with this. It's just, it's a form of awareness. So you, you've been aware of things all your life. So mindfulness is, is one form of awareness. And it's also, it can be said, it's a, it's a way of paying attention. But it's a very particular way of paying attention. Deliberate, sustained, and non-judgmental. And those words are very very uh, chosen. Um, And it's not my definition, although I love it. Um, So deliberate in that, at least in the beginning, we have to train in this. This is not uh, um, sort of spontaneous, usually not not a spontaneous thing that your mind does. Um, or, Or I can say we don't notice those little micro moments when it does do it spontaneously. So there's this training aspect to it. So it's quite deliberate in the beginning. Sustained, so, so we'll talk more about how concentration is a key part of this practice. It's a fundamental part of actually most forms of meditation, and it's essential. Um, and so if you can keep your mind, you develop your concentration, you can keep your mind on whatever it is you're attending to, your loved one, your job, your whatever, your driving. Um, this concentration element, the sustained attention is necessary. And finally, non-judgmental. And by that, I don't mean... Or I don't just mean, um, um, you know, like, well, you, you know, the, how we think about judgment, the, the conscious judgments that we make. Oh, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover and this kind of thing. You, should, you shouldn't judge a person by how they look and this kind of thing. Um, but we're talking about a much more powerful and usually unconscious form of judgment. You could say a precognitive judgment that, that happens automatically, um, unconsciously. And so, for example... Uh, and it's, it's very adaptive, you know, as, as biological organisms to, to, to immediately have a sense of, I like this, I don't like this, or this is neutral, this is, this is okay, this is safe. Because, you know, so many thousands of years ago, you, you would need to assess things that quickly, 
uh, on a pretty regular basis is this animal or maybe maybe even today you're walking down you're walking in the park and there's a dog coming up you're like what is this is this dog okay um so there's a judgment that's happening constantly that you're mostly not aware of and so that almost precognitive judgment is also what we're talking about with this awareness um, there's another way to kind of unwrap this, and I think this is maybe more, I like to say anatomical, but maybe it's, maybe it's a, how a psychologist uh, would, would do it, and that is um, that mindfulness has these two fundamental elements, concentration and attention. So the concentration piece is not too mysterious. I always tell people, you know, we, we all know kind of what that is, concentration, just you're able to keep your mind in one place uh, for, for a prolonged period of time. Um, or if it wanders, you're able to bring it back quickly so that the total amount of time you're devoting to a topic, more of the time is actually on the topic and less of the time is spent wandering. Um, and if, you know, this is kind of an impossible study to do, but, um, but if you really look closely, when you apply your mind to something, let's say you're going to, I don't know, do some gardening or you're going to, or you're at work and you're doing some kind of project or task, um, if, if, we, if we could get someone in there with a clipboard and, and write down when you're actually, your mind is on the task and when your mind, even just for a moment, has flittered off and is thinking about lunch or your son's graduation or whatever is distracting, and then you come right back to the project, but that's time that you're away. Honestly, you could do this as an exercise, but although it's difficult. Uh, it's probably... It's probably much lower than you would think. I, I'm going to guess it's less than 50%, actually, if your mind is not trained, that when you're actually attending to something, you're, you're, it's at best probably 50-50 that you're actually, your mind is on that thing. So that's the concentration piece. And um, developing concentration also is not mysterious. I always tell people it's like going to the gym. You know, you go to the gym and you, and you do lots of uh, curls and your, your biceps will get bigger. So with this concentration uh, um, exercise, which is p- part of the mindfulness training, we affix, just like we were doing a moment ago with the breathing, you affix your mind to something. In that case, it was the breath. And each time it wanders off, and it probably wandered off a lot, you bring it back. The more you do that, it's the, more you, the more you're lifting weights. And so your mindfulness muscle gets stronger. And so now after some training, and in the eight weeks that mindfulness-based stress reduction is, it, it's typically, it takes a few weeks. Uh, it's usually in the second half of the program that people really start to notice the benefits that are coming. But your concentration will be better, and you're able to keep your mind on something for, for more sustained uh, attention. So the concentration piece is not too mysterious. The attention piece is a little bit more interesting or maybe, maybe um, uh, harder to quantify. And so not only are we saying that mindfulness has a concentrated awareness, so you're bringing your mind to something and you're keeping your attention on it, but the qualities of attention that you're bringing to bear, that's also a key part of mindfulness. And that probably is what distinguishes it from other forms of meditation. So what are these qualities? I won't go into all of them, but you can see generally these, are, these promote a kind of openness and fluidity of mind so that you can basically just observe your experience just observe your experience. And there's a certain irony in this, and that is you're not trying to change anything. Notice when we did the breath, I didn't, we're not trying to change the breath. We're just paying attention closely to the breath and noticing what we notice. Um, so there's a, it's a constant process of noticing 
and, and letting go, and noticing and letting go. So where did this come from? Um, India. So about 2,500 years ago, the historical figure known as the Buddha is the first one, apparently invented this, wrote about it, and we have those, those uh, writings. Um, in that time and place, the language was Pali, and so the, the word for this practice is vipassana, which is the Pali word. And um, uh, real sort of um, scholars would, would distinguish between vipassana and mindfulness, but I think for most of us, we can consider them synonymous. The, the literal translation of vipassana is not mindfulness, though. It's clear seeing. Clear seeing. Let's see if I put that on there. Yeah. And um, the reason is because the, the most sort of uh, maybe important or dramatic attribute of the practice is that it reveals more of the unconscious processes that are going on in your mind. So I like to think of, you know, the tip of the iceberg um, um, image. Have you ever seen, you know, like it's a big iceberg in the ocean and there's a certain small portion that's above the water that everybody would see. Um, but then there's, there's, because of the photography, there's also this huge part of the iceberg under, under the water. But because you've got the privilege of this photograph, you can see it. So you can see most of the iceberg is under the water. That's, to me, that's a good analogy for the conscious and the unconscious mind. So we're conscious of really just a small part, I think. And the unconscious stuff is driving most of our behaviors. So with the mindfulness, um, you, you start to see, it's almost like if we were to go back to that image, it's like the water level goes down or the, the iceberg goes up, something like that. So the stuff, there's stuff that was previously unconscious becomes conscious, more of it. So that's, that's the, the, the origin of the name. It's also known as insight meditation for this same reason. Things that were previously unconscious become apparent. And it's, it's quite profound uh, uh, how the insights come for people. Um, you know, these are insights into your own life, your own behavior, your own body, um, and sometimes into, into the general properties of, of life and matter and existence. This, there are a lot of effects of mindfulness, and, and when we do our exercise together, you'll, you'll see. But I just thought, just for, to close out this section, I thought, let's, let's name specifically some things. So this, this, I we could make an entirely different list, but I just did this. So one thing is increased body awareness. And research shows this. Almost everybody, and you saw when we were doing the breath a moment ago, I was asking you to really feel that belly and then even feel other places where you could feel subtle movement of, of breathing. So you were experiencing increased body awareness probably in those moments that you were able to do that. If you do it on a, on a regular basis, you, you have a generalized sort of um, increased body awareness as a baseline. And as a physician, I, I firmly believe that is good for health. Different reasons for that. Relaxation is not the goal of mindfulness practice. It is the, one of the greatest side effects. Um, and you don't have to be relaxed to do mindfulness. In fact, that's part of the, the power of mindfulness. You can bring it to your anxious state, your, your chronic painful state, your anger, your, your frustration, whatever is troubling you and maybe isn't very relaxing. You can still bring mindfulness to that. Um, you know, some patients, the body can't relax. You know, there's a, there's a devi- surgical device implanted or there, whatever. And um, so mindfulness, remember, is awareness. And you can be aware of nice, relaxed, wonderful things, and you can be aware of tight, difficult things as well. But 
Generally speaking, when you look at the research on the autonomic nervous system, the more meditation that's done, generally the more parasympathetic tone you get. And so, so over time, people feel more relaxed. You can feel more relaxed right in a, in a part, like maybe when we did the breathing. You might, I saw a couple of heads get very relaxed, actually. Um, so, so you can get relaxed just with a single meditation session. But I'm talking more about over time. Because in any individual session, you might not be relaxed. And that's not wrong. That's nothing abnormal. This is probably the most significant thing. Decreased psychological distress. And there, I could have listed a dozen mechanisms of how that... I just chose these two. But um, this is what this practice was designed for. It, its stated purpose is to reduce suffering. So there's many different ways that it does that. One is... Um, and I'm, I'll, be, I'll, I'll think now of like patients that come to our mindfulness program... Um, they, some of them have really significant medical issues, surgical issues, psychiatric issues. And so the thoughts, and remember, they're happening out of our control, right? They're, so it's not like you really are choosing what you, to think about. Your, your thoughts come unbidden. Um, if you have to, th- this is especially clear, I think, with anxiety disorders. If your mind, if you have anxiety disorder and your mind is putting out an anxious thought every 20 seconds, you will probably, without if you're not being conscious, you'll, you'll default to uh, chasing down every single thought. Oh, yeah, did I leave the stove on? Or, oh, I, I hope my son's going to be okay, this and that. Um, or every, every thought, and then you follow it with another thought, and you try to reach some kind of resolution to relieve the anxiety. Um, what if you could just notice that, oh, there's another anxious thought. I don't have to, I don't, there's a great uh, bumper sticker, don't believe everything you think. Um, so, so these thoughts come up, and what if you, at least during a meditation period, if not, if not in your day-to-day life, what if you just, uh, just, no, just named it, oh, there's an anxious thought. You don't have to chase it down. You don't have to go figure it out and fix it. You just notice, oh, there's an anxious thought. Oh, that's my mind, and my mind has that habit, anxious thought. Um, the, the other way, so we have a lot of people with chronic pain for which this is really useful. In fact, most of the early research for mindfulness was on uh, chronic pain. Uncoupling the pain from all the cognitive and emotive um, associations that we have relieves uh, usually about 50% of the suffering right off the bat, even without diminishing the pain, the actual physical pain. So here's an example. Um, you know, say, say uh, someone with a back pain, disabling back pain. They're on disability for this terrible back pain. So you can imagine they wake up in the morning and they get up. And if, if at any moment there's a sensation in their, in their back that's unpleasant, it's going to trigger the usual thought. Um, the physical sensation is going to be linked to, to uh, oh, th- there's my pain again. Uh, it's still not better. Um, and, and I, my disability is going to run out, and, and I'm going to lose the house, and, uh, and this isn't, why did I deserve this? How did I deserve All of that suffering is optional. It's difficult but possible and very liberating to, to disentangle or uncouple those so that the, the twinge in the back is just that. And if you look at it with a sustained attention, you learn a lot about it, and it's not the big scary monster that it was uh, that you were imagining when you went off into, into your story. So very, very helpful, uh, this, this capacity for, for uncoupling. As I mentioned earlier, you can gain insight uh, by doing this practice. 
So it is, I'm happy to say, all over the place now. It's mainstream. It is mainstream. Um, so healthcare is kind of um, the most prominent place, and we'll talk a lot more about that. But it's now, so Google, Apple, Nike, Procter & Gamble, I mean, like where it's, it's sanctioned from the top, and there's a, there's a program in place for employees. I mean, it's really out there. Um, education, a lot of schools. In, I'll show you a slide from a program in the East Bay that is teaching teachers and kids to do a little mindfulness in their, in their classroom. Um, social services, we have a program right now where we're bringing mindfulness to the homeless and uh, runaway kids at Larkin Street Youth Services. It's, it's fantastic. They, they, it's like um, nectar. It's really, really um, healing for them. Um, also, also, these are traumatized kids, and, and it also starts to, to touch that. We have to be ready for that. But it's, it's like they're being fed in, in a certain way for the first time. Um, corrections, prisons, um, um, programs for many years now. Um, politics, there is, a, there is a mindful congressman, one. Um, um, it's Tim Ryan, and he's Democrat uh, from Ohio. Um, and uh, he, he's, he's made it part of his political identity. He wrote a book, The Mindful Nation, and he, he freely you know, sort of espouses mindfulness. So that's one, one down and <laughs> how many hundreds to go? Um, and then it's in the media all the time. You'll see it here. I'll show you some, some slides. Oh, first about health care. So, so, you know, you, you do a study and you publish it. Um, and not all of these are studies, but, but a lot of them are. Probably, probably half of all these are actual studies. And look what's happened. It's just exploded. And that only goes to 2013. If you ran it out, I haven't counted. But, uh, but my, just by my general assessment of trying to keep track of it all, um, it's not going down. I don't think it's continuing with that exponential growth, but I, I think it's either plateaued or it's just a, a, a less steep increase. But it's still, it's, it's exploded. NIH is, is funding so many studies on mindfulness. Um, this is the, in the East Bay, Mindful Schools, I mentioned. Um, here's the cover of Time Magazine in February 2014, The Mindful Revolution. Here is 60 Minutes, uh, like a year later, um, so this is, it's, it's here. We're, we've landed. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you've seen all the angry street protests from the Buddhist monks. <laughs> uh, okay, so just a brief word about health care. Um, so as I mentioned, there's, there are hundreds now of experimental trials. So take so many human beings and, um, and give them mindfulness. Usually it's mindfulness-based stress reduction, but there's other mindfulness-based interventions. Um, and hopefully have a control group. They don't all have a control group. Probably half of them do. Um, and, and so the control group gets some other intervention, and then you compare the outcomes. This research is extraordinarily broad. Um, um, the conditions that have been looked at, so using mindfulness for all different kinds of pain, cancer, almost like all different aspects of cancer, the, 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 the mental distress of cancer, the quality of life, fatigue, uh, mood. There are a lot of studies that look at a specific medical condition, you know, uh, you know, um, you know diabetes or um, you know, osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, something like that. There's also ones looking, many, many, looking at specific psychiatric indications, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, uh, obesity. I mean, it just goes on and on. And the populations, so this is important too. Who in these studies, who's doing the mindfulness? 
everybody's doing the mindfulness. So sometimes they just choose a general population. That'd be like this room. I don't know if you're sick. I don't know if you're, you're not even a patient, maybe. But we take you all and, and, and study. You know, we all have, you don't have to have an anxiety disorder to be, to be anxious, right? We all have some anxiety. We all have some moments of low mood. So a lot of these studies don't just look at disorders, but actually the, the, the human state, the, the human um, condition, I would say. Health professionals, health professional students, we, we did it here, um, um, inner city, veterans, uh, youth increasingly in the last few years, youth. So I'm not going to go through these because I want to get to our exercise. Um, but, but the biggies, I'd say if you, if you looked at all these hundreds of studies and you, you could cluster at four groups that they get the most, four topics that, get, that have the most studies done on them. Uh, and these, maybe there's, I can put these on the website if you're interested in these references. Uh, but pain, chronic pain, cancer, depression, and like I said, de- depressive disorders, but also just the mood, the, the, our mood, if you're not depressed, uh, uh, and the anxiety disorders, or just anxiety, not even anxiety disorder. Oh, and then this one's so interesting. So you probably know Elizabeth Blackburn got the Nobel Prize. She's a professor at UCSF. She got the Nobel Prize for her work when she was, um, I don't know if she was a grad student or a junior professor at Yale. And she discovered the, um, um, the structure of telomeres. And if you recall, telomeres are the, the caps on the end of the chromosomes. So when your cells have to reproduce, have to replicate, the, the DNA, the chromosomes have to replicate. And every time they do that, there's a threat. Well, um, you need this telomere to keep, to keep, to protect the DNA when it's being replicated. And each time that it replicates, you lose a little bit of your telomere. Telomerase, actually it's telomerase reverse transcriptase, is the enzyme in your cell that buffs up, builds up your telomere again. So, so that's kind of one set of facts. The other is... This correlates with the lifespan of the cell, and so there's strong conjecture it might correlate with the lifespan of the organism. That's you and me. Um, so there are six mindfulness, actually it might even be more, I haven't looked in several months now, but six studies showing mindfulness actually increases telomerase activity. And, and one with Elizabeth Blackburn and, and Alyssa Apple famously looked at stressed caregivers. So these are people with a lot of stress where... Um, you tend to lose telomerase activity, and the mindfulness seemed to counteract that. So we're talking about longevity, maybe, maybe. And if that's not tantalizing enough, so the, the, here's the, what the fountain of youth. If that's not, if that's not enough for you, um, brain, it can... So, and, and Helen Wang is coming next week. She'll tell you all about it. But there are studies um, showing that meditators, mindfulness meditators, their brains look younger the cortical thickness, long-term meditators, so you need to get started right away, um, that the cortical thickness increases. And so when, you, when we age, the, we, we lose cortical thickness. It thins. Um, and so when you look at, in this one study I'm thinking of, you look at the, the mindfulness, people have been meditating for, I forget, like seven years or something. Um, I mean, they did other things. They weren't just meditating. They were living a life and they meditated. Um, uh, their brains looked, I forget how many years, younger. Like, like if you were a radiologist and you didn't have the date of birth, you'd look at that and say, oh, that's 35-year-old, but actually it's, it's 45-year-old who's meditating. Um, okay, so quickly, this, what is mindfulness-based stress reduction? Then we'll, then we'll do our exercise, and, and I want to really dive into that with you and, and um, 
hear, what, hear, what, hear your experience. So, so what is mindfulness-based stress reduction? This is the format I've referred to where, where many of you have already done it, and um, it's kind of the, it's the main training that people get for, for mindfulness. So I would say, so it's an introductory training, so beginners, most people are beginners coming to this, and it's intensive, at least by, not by monastic standards, but by our life standards. So, um, and I'll get into that more, what's the time commitment, that kind of thing. And of course, you're doing it in the context of your life. So if you're, if you're coming because you're in distress, then, then the, you will learn mindfulness to, to apply it to your condition of distress. Um, it could be, as I say here, just stressed out. I see, as a physician, I see a lot of people whose who's, um, medical symptoms are not dangerous. There's no disease present, but it's just a manifestation of a really kind of out-of-balance nervous system from stress. That would include me and everyone here probably. Some people come just, just for anxiety, depression. Um, others have a specific disease that has a lot of dimensions to it that they're trying to cope with, you know, like... like um, I mean, it could be even potentially terminal diagnoses. People might come with uh, ALS or, or some advanced cancers. Um, and then some people in the class, they just, they're not necessarily suffering, suffering in any special way. They're just, they're just suffering like the rest of us. But they, um, they want to touch life more deeply or they want to explore. They want to learn more about themselves. And so they're, they're, this, is a, this, is, this is the, I always think of psychotherapy as the Western civilization a method for self-awareness, and mindfulness as the Eastern civilization method for self-awareness. So a lot of people come for that. They're, they're, they want to awaken. They just want to learn more about themselves. So I'm proud of this. It's, it's not how I'd like most people to come to the class as the last resort, but I'm proud that um, this is how it functioned and still does, but, but originally it was like mostly this. If everything was tried and, it, and the patient's still suffering, like they tried all the surgeries, they tried all the medicines, patients still at their wit's end, then they'd send them to the, to the mindfulness program. Like, okay, we tried everything else, so you know, go to the mindfulness program. Um, and it worked. That's the thing. That's the thing. Um, I, wouldn't, I personally don't recommend waiting until you're absolutely you know, at your wit's end before doing this. But, but the fact that it works in that situation, to me, is a very powerful testimony. You've heard of John Kabat-Zinn, perhaps? So he designed this... Uh, format this mindfulness-based stress reduction format, in 1979, University of Massachusetts um, in Worcester. Now, this this the last time anybody counted, it was 250. I'm I bet it's 350 or 400 now, and it's all over the world. It's it's, it's all over the place. Uh, so it's really burgeoned. Um, okay, so what's the structure of of the um, of the program? So we start with these free informational sessions. So you don't have to sign up. In fact, you should check it out. So, so when I recommend this for patients, uh, I never say, hey, you really need to do the mindfulness program. I say, I think you're a good candidate for this. Go to the informational session and tell me what, what you think. Because you're, you're going to have to commit a lot of time, and you're going to have to do a practice that will entail sitting with things that are uncomfortable. So that's going to take a lot of commitment from you. And so you have to decide to do it. Not You can't, like, oh, my doctor told me to. That's not going to work. Um, so these free informational sessions are a non-committal way for you to check it out. Um, you can also kind of check out the teacher. We have several different teachers. And so you can see, you go to the informational session led by such and such teacher, and you can see if you like that person, you like their style and their communication. So, so that's how it starts for most people. Go to the informational session. I also invite health professionals who are interested in referring people. They can come to this and see what it's all about. 
And we do this uh, probably every, I don't know, uh, it varies, probably every six to eight weeks we're doing one of these. So there's one, actually there's one right now. There's one right now at the Osher Center. So we're one of the few programs left in the country that still does a private interview with you. So if you decide, you go to the informational session, you decide, oh, I like this, this feels right, I want to I do this. Then, then you sign up and register, and then the next thing is you have a, um, usually now, these days it's on the phone, but we used to do it in person, have an interview with a teacher, and they just, it's confidential, and there's no record of it, it's not a medical record or anything, and they just want to learn what, what's, what's your story, why are you coming here, what are you hoping for, and, and, um, and get to know the student, because in the class, you don't have to speak in the class, this is different, this is not um, group psychotherapy, this is a mindfulness training, so you don't have to speak up in class, I'll say more about that. So you get the private interview with the teacher, and then the eight weeks begins. You have one class a week, two and a half hours. And then the homework in the form of audio files is guided mindfulness practice, a little bit like what we did several minutes ago. So you do those on all the, all the other days. So six days a week you're doing that, or you're supposed to. And then on the sixth week, there's an all-day silent retreat. Um, usually it's on Saturday. You, you're silent. The, the instructor leads you the whole day. The, the instructor is t- talking and leading you. But, um, but for you, it's a silent retreat. Um, and the stuff is these audio files. There's a workbook, and there's also a textbook. And, I always, and it's a great book, but I always tell people it's the least important part of the whole program. If you come to this program, do the practice. Do the 30 minutes every day. That's, that's where you're going to get the benefit. Reading about it is a bonus. Re- you'll get more out of it. But but it's, in fact, it's kind of an evasive maneuver for a lot of people because sitting, sitting with um, the unresolved things in our lives, that's difficult. And so often, just subconsciously, the ego says, oh, why don't we just read the book tonight? You know, it's like, it's like a, a safer uh, way to go. So I, I try to close that door and say, you know what, don't even read the book. Here's the book. Read it next year. Do, just do the practice. If you don't have time, just do the audio uh, files. So each class has three components an experiential component, so an actual mindfulness exercise, and it's usually structured so that it's the one that's going to be the homework for the coming week. So that way you, you get a taste of it, and then you know it's easier to do it at home. That's a, that's a long, uh, and there might be bits, there might be other bits, but altogether this 45 to 60 minutes of the two-and-a-half-hour class is experiential. It's doing the mindfulness. Then there's discussion. That's the part where you could talk or not, but the, the value to talking is it's kind of like we all come together... For, for this once a week, and we learn something about mindfulness, and then we all go out into our lives and have different things happen and try to bring mindfulness, hopefully, to some of these things. And then we come back, and then we share our experience. And, of course, the instructor is going to be being sort of you know, answering questions and, 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 and advising on things. So it's very useful. People sometimes come and they say, you know, I don't like groups. I just want one-on-one mindfulness training. You know, I'll, I'll pay for it and all that. And I always say, okay, but... I think you should do the class because it's, it's a better experience. Um, you're going to learn from, from all the, the person with cancer or the person who got in the car accident or you know, the person who's very anxious. Just because that's not your story, you'll, you, you will benefit, though, from hearing their questions and the teacher's answer, answers to them about their mindfulness and how they're applying it. The last of the three sort of components is the didactic, and so these are curricular points that, that's part of the program. But we almost always weave them into the discussion. It's rare that the instructor will get up there and give a lecture or something. It's almost always part of the discussion because some of these, some of these um, curricular or didactic points 
arise spontaneously. Just once people start doing the practice, people will ask. There's some common questions that come up, and, and so that kind of takes care of itself. We also talk about the formal practices. So these are when you go home and listen to these audio files. The big three are the body scan, mindful movement, which could be qigong or yoga, and uh, sitting meditation. But there's other formal practices. But those are the biggies. And then, but more important perhaps, so you kind of ground yourself, you learn mindfulness, and you hone your concentration with these formal practices. But then the emphasis increasingly as the eight weeks goes on is the informal practices. That's your life. That's you brushing your teeth at home or um, interacting with your daughter or, um, or your boss or whatever. So, so, so we sort of learn this skill and hone it with these formal time-tested practices, but then you start to bring it into your life. That's really what matters. Because when you graduate from the eight weeks, I don't want you to be a good meditator. I want you to have a better life. I won't get too into this in the interest of time, but, but the content, so of course the, the method, mindfulness, how do you do it? How do you do it? That, that's obviously a topic almost every night. Um, body awareness talked about. Perception, very important. There's a, there, John Kabat-Zinn has a saying, um, it's not the stressor per se, it's how you perceive it. And a lot of psychological research validates that. Yeah, I always, my, uh, my uncle, he's kind of a, He's deceased now just recently, but um, he's um, he's um, kind of eccentric, wealthy guy in Manhattan. And um, and when he used to drive, so, so he would just park wherever he wanted, and he'd get parking tickets. And he kind of enjoyed it. He, was, he, he kind of felt like, you know, because he didn't mind paying, like, 250 bucks or whatever it was. And, and um, he almost felt like he was getting away with some. Somehow he enjoyed it. If I got that parking ticket, my blood pressure, like, you know, it's, so it's the same ticket, right? But it's how you perceive it. Um, yeah, stress and our reactivity, uh, key, key elements that we get to in the heart of the program. Um, and bringing mindfulness into your life, as I said, that's really the main, the main objective. Uh, just a brief word about our program at the Osher Center. So we're one of the biggest in the country and, and oldest. Uh, in 1999, we started. Have had over 10,000 people come through now, and we've sp- we've spawned a lot of other programs, um, uh, some of which still exist and some of which don't. And did I? All right, Nancy's going to be one of your speakers. Nancy and Dr. Judy Cuneo. Uh, Nancy um, created mindfulness-based childbirth and parenting. So that's the application of mindfulness to the experience of of labor and delivery and, and early parenting. Okay, these are our current teachers. Um, I'm very proud of them. They're all have a lot of experience and are very good, and you can see their bios on the website if you're interested. Okay, let's do our thing. So this will be a longer, this will be, let's see, where are we? Uh, this will be about a 15-minute thing here. Okay. Yeah, get yourselves comfortable. And same, same idea about posture, you know, just kind of comfortable, symmetrical. And the spine, you know, you don't have to overdo it, but uh, these chairs are tough for this. They, they encourage you to kind of like slump over. So see if you can keep the spine a little bit uh, erect. For one thing, it's easier on your whole body if you do that, but also it keeps you a little bit more awake. Oh, and uh, uh, turn off cell phones, please, if you, if you could. And I would say like really off, like airplane mode or something so that doesn't even vibrate. And I'll do the same thing. I'll ring the bell once for us to start, and then, and then when we get to the end, I'll ring it three times.
So let's, let's start where we did last time, with the breath. See if you can ride the breath. Keep your awareness on the breath in the belly for one full breath and then maybe stay there in the abdomen for the second breath. Come back again if you've wandered. Just come back to that belly. (coughs) The rhythm of your breath. If you were able to stick with two full breaths, go for three. And what I'll do now with you is what I call the arrival meditation. And we'll arrive first in the body, and then the emotional realm, and then the thought realm. So starting with the body, just as we had our awareness in the belly a moment ago, feeling the movement of breath, let's bring that same kind of physical body awareness to the parts of the body that I name, and I'll go really fast by, by usual standards. I mean, usually this is a, this is a 30 to 45-minute um, part, but I'll just I'll call out a portion of the body, and I'd like you to bring your awareness to that part of the body, which just means feel it. Just feel this part of the body. So let's start with the toes of both feet. And if you haven't practiced body awareness very much, It can be hard to feel the toes. People don't have good sensation uh, in their toes. So just noticing, and if you don't feel your toes, then that's an experience you can be mindful of. You might call it neutral. Just notice that. But if there is a sensation, tingling or warmth, pressure, whatever you notice, and then bring that awareness now to the rest of the feet, starting with the heels, which are bearing a little bit of weight probably, and the soles of the feet, the tops of the feet and the ankles. And I forgot to give one important uh, tip, and that is when you bring your awareness to these areas, I recommend a kind of a gesture of letting go. You don't, like I said, you don't have to actually be able to let go. And it might actually be impossible in some parts of your body. But just give it a little try. So as we go next to the lower legs, you know, the shins and the calves, both legs, just see if, see if there's tension that you can let go of. But then after that, the real purpose of mindfulness is to become aware, is to feel the legs, whether you were able to let go or not. Tune in. And then your knees. Can you feel inside your knees? 
Is that possible? And then the upper legs, the thighs, all the way to the hips. The pelvis. And it might sound a bit strange, but but I'd like you to bring awareness for a moment to the anal sphincter and the pelvic floor. See if there's unnecessary tension there and see if you can let go and what that feels like. And then coming out of the pelvis into the the low abdomen and the low back. And then the upper abdomen and the middle back and then on the sides, the flanks. See if you can let go and then tune in. What's there? What's, what's there to be felt? This is your body. It's important. Then into the chest, the upper back. Just noticing what you feel. Maybe you're leaning back on the chair and there's some, some pressure or contact between your back or your shoulder blades and the chair. And then before we come up to the shoulders, let's go out and get the fingertips of both hands. So sensitive the fingertips are, exquisitely sensitive. If they're touching something, you could probably tune in and feel that gentle pressure. And if they're not, if they're dangling or if they're exposed to the air, you can actually sometimes feel the air currents in the room going over the fingertips. And then let's expand from the fingertips now to the hands, the thumbs, the wrists. If you do a lot of keyboarding in your life, notice the wrists. Let go. You can almost imagine the carpal tunnel relaxing open another millimeter or two. Just notice what's there. Is it, is it aching? Is it heavy? Is it warm? Then into the forearms. Elbows and upper arms. And then we can rejoin the thorax now at the shoulders. And I'd like you to bring your awareness to what's called the shoulder girdle. This is the circumferential area from shoulder to shoulder. So in the front, that includes the collarbones and the base of the throat. And then on the back, the um, trapezius muscles and the base of the neck. So kind of from shoulder to shoulder. A lot of tension can be held here unconsciously. 
So just tune into that. Let go if, if you're noticing there's something there that can be released. And then we'll go into the, the throat and the neck, the mouth, out onto the face. The face is another great place to bring awareness and a kind of a letting go intention. Especially around the eyes. Just, just tune in. See if you can just kind of let go. Let, let gravity gently pull on the facial muscles. And then tune in how it feels around your eyes. And then the forehead and the scalp. See if you can feel the whole scalp, the whole head. Tension headaches usually manifest here in the scalp. So just notice if there's any tension for you. And what happens if you bring awareness and, and a kind of a, a gesture of letting go to the scalp and the head? What does that feel like? And then this first phase of the arrival meditation will end now back where we started with the breath in the belly. Except now you might notice the breath more easily in other places, the chest and the pelvis and the back, maybe even the hips and the shoulders and the neck and the throat. And we'll transition to the second part of the arrival. Now to the emotional realm. We'll use the same attention and the same principles. We're not trying to change anything. We're just trying to become aware. So as you go to the emotional realm now, just see if you can tune into how you're feeling. How, how is your mood? And you don't have to change it. It's actually okay in this moment if your mood is low. We're just going to notice it, feel it, let it be. In the emotional realm, sometimes it's helpful to label There's usually many emotions present at the same time. So it can be helpful to label, like, oh, there's sadness, or oh, there's excitement. It's also much easier for the mind to wander when we're in this realm. The body is nice and nice and solid. There's sensations we can really tune into. The emotional realm's a little harder for some people, for many people. So come back one last time to the emotions if you've wandered. Just come back. It's a new moment and just tune in. How does it feel? Is the mind um, 
are the emotions uh, active or more, is it sort of high energy or is it more low energy or maybe just neutral? And then the last phase of our arrival meditation now, the thought realm. This, what we'll do here is observe our thoughts just very briefly. And that's different than thinking. So normally, you know, when we're in our normal kind of state of mind, there's a a thought pops up kind of randomly. And then we react to the thought uh, with another thought. And and maybe another thought or an emotion. And then pretty soon we have constructed something. It might be a memory. It might be a plan for the future. It might be an anxiety about the future. Um, It could be um, a regret about the past. But something has been sort of created from that, that first thought. But this is quite different. Observing thoughts is different than thinking. So the process starts out the same because we can't, Stop it, really. There's a thought that's born. But instead of responding to that thought with another thought, just observe it. It has a lifespan, you'll see. Maybe it's a few seconds or even less. You can just notice that thought. It, it's born, and then it goes away. And then another thought comes, or it's even possible the same thought will come back. But again, it just has a limited lifespan, and then it's gone. It's almost like being in the movie theater. You're in your seat looking at the screen. Let's see what the next thought is going to be. If you ever get lost, come back to your body, to the, to the seat in the movie theater. Just feel your body for a moment. And then, and then once again, resolve to just watch the next thought. And then just for a few more seconds as we do this, I want to ask you a a little question you can investigate. Are there any gaps between your thoughts? And if so, what is that like? What is your experience like in the gap? Now let's end the exercise back where we began. Now having arrived in the body, the emotions, the thoughts, just 
just noticing what's going on for you right now in those areas. Let's come back to the breath. But let's do the breath in the whole body this time. Notice the belly for sure. The chest is easy. Notice maybe the nose. You feel the air rushing in and out of the nose. Maybe the throat, if you really apply a subtle awareness, you might feel a little jet stream of air if you're breathing through your nose as it hits the back of the throat on the inhalation. You can feel maybe your shoulders moving just a little bit as you breathe and your back. You might feel the pressure in the pelvis go up when you inhale and down when you exhale. You might even feel in your arms and legs. So just just breathing for the next few moments. There's nothing else that you have to do. You don't have to remember anything, fix anything, take care of anything. See if you can be free for a moment to just breathe in this body, this, this animal body of yours. Just breathing. Same as last time, when you're ready, just gently open your eyes and bring your awareness back to the room around you. So I'm curious, other experiences, anything at all? I fell asleep. Oh, I attained total enlightenment. Oh, my pain got worse or whatever. Yeah. My leg kept twitching. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. When I was doing this, yeah. You know, the, you know the the autonomic nervous system um, often changes when we do this, and so I always and I think it changes the state of, of uh, muscle tension. You know, the, the kind of baseline signal from the from the brain to the muscles about how tense to be, because um, obviously when we're when we're stressed, the signal is. Uh, the fight-or-flight signal is it's not safe, so you want to have your muscles tense, ready to flee from the tiger. Um, and so releasing that, I could imagine, might, might, might cause a twitch. The, the teaching kind of around that would be, um, oh, just, just notice the twitch. And then in particular, not just the physical aspect of it, like how it feels, which is kind of strange, right? Like it's moving, you're not even trying to move it, and it's moving. That's, so there's this kind of a strangeness to it. But then also, what's your mind doing? You know, a lot of minds would be like, oh, no, you know, panic or anxiety. Um, but then, I'll, but wait a minute, we could, just, we could just sit through this. Like, I'm not dying here. You know, and so it's actually something that can be worked with. Pretty much that's how we treat everything. 
in the mindfulness practice. It's something you can work with. However, I want, this is a big point when we have people come to the class, and same, it would apply to the, to the, the, the sound being a little bit unpleasant for, for this gentleman, is there's an art to this. So you don't, you don't just sit. When, when something unpleasant arises, as it inevitably will, and it's, it's almost especially will with this practice, it's like we're asking for it. <laughs> um, you, my, my advice to people is you, 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 once you learn the mindfulness, you, you bring mindfulness to bear for as long as you can. If it's a very strong and unpleasant stimulus, you might, maybe you can only stay for one breath. Preferably, you could stay for one minute with your concentrated attention and really, un, really sort of um, get into, see into the nature of it. Um, or five minutes, and then you can start to see, wow, how your mind reacts to it and all this. Um, but if it's too much, th- you bail out. You know, I always say, you know, the space shuttle, they've got, or the, the space station, they've got the escape pod. So you've always, you can always just, just get out. And so we have a lot of patients on medication and different, or, or maybe just you need a distraction. You know, it might even be not the healthiest distraction, video game or something. Um, it still might be appropriate, you know, or call the friend or go for a walk. So, so there's an artful way to work with these things. And if, if it's a muscle twitch, probably you can hang in there, really, and really stay with it like you did. Um, but if it's something more scary or more painful or more distressed, then, then maybe not so much. But still, it's about, it's about going to our edges. This is a method that allows us to go to our edges, our uncomfortable edges, and actually our, our positive edges. And that's why I say it's a, it's a growth practice. Because wherever, whatever your limits are, mindfulness gives you a way to, to, to be at that limit in, in, where you, in a way that you suffer less. And so the next time, that won't be your limit. Your limit will be out here now. Any other? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. I'm, I'm, yeah, bend the back. Right. So as I was saying, it's kind of this great side effect. Um, and I think it's it's also again the autonomic nervous system is oh sorry good thank you for reminding me yeah so to repeat the question um, uh, what's the difference between relaxation and mindfulness basically is the question yeah and um, so relaxation is great um, I'm pro relaxation um, and it, like I say it's kind of a side effect of this practice but mindfulness is awareness. You can be aware of relaxed. You can be aware of tense. You can be aware of in pain. You can be aware of angry, right? That's not relaxing, but it's still mindfulness. So the relaxation that you experience, and especially that you stayed alert, that's perfect, actually. We, we call it restful alertness. Because normally, uh, and for people, the first week or two in the class, everybody falls asleep. <laughs> um, um, and they come back to having done the homework, and they all say that, that um, because we're in the habit of, if you think about it, like one of the practices, the first couple of weeks is the body scan. So you lie down, close your eyes, and you have this audio file. You go through the body much slower than, than we did now. And so you lie down, you close your eyes. You know, so your body's, oh, it's time to go to sleep. So to be able to keep the mind clear and sharp while the body is at ease is a, I think it's what you're describing, is a lovely experience that comes um, with more practice. So the difference, to s- sort of summarize it, relaxation is, is mostly a, a phenomenon of the autonomic nervous system, like your sympathetic fight-or-flight nervous system is, is 
its tone is going down and the parasympathetic is going up, has a lot of physiological effects that you feel. Feel warm, feel the muscles relax, maybe are less painful or tense. Um, um, you, you know, your blood flow will be directed more to your gastrointestinal tract, so you, you can feel different there, different, different things. Whereas mindfulness is a, um, an attentional state. You're bringing your attention to something. And in this case, it's yourself, it's your body, and it may or may not be relaxed. Good. So, so um, the question is, um, um, at first, uh, during this, the exercise, I was alert, and I was with it, and I was hearing you, but then my, my sort of consciousness started to dull, and I wasn't hearing you, and I was more in a kind of a, I think, a kind of a pleasant state of, of just hearing the rhythm of sound and, and um, not being as aware as I wanted to be. How do I bring myself back? So first of all, everything's okay. So we're mindful. Anything, I, I often say mindfulness is like a container. Whatever comes up, the container can hold it. So for you, I don't know we'll call that, uh, it doesn't sound like just sleepiness. It sounds like, like trance or something, right? So some, some altered level of consciousness may be on the spectrum of sleep or not. I don't know. Um, so this is fine. That's what came up. For someone else, it was anger. For someone else, it was hunger. For someone else, it was boredom. So whatever comes up, we can bring mindfulness to it. The, the key thing about what you're talking about is the mind itself, if it starts to get dull, then your capacity to practice mindfulness gets, gets impaired. So you don't have to bring yourself back. But, but if you're trying to practice mindfulness, that's generally what you want to do. Um, there, there's, there's no trick, really, at that point, except to say that the physical, the body and the breath, are when things get foggy, when your mind starts to drift um, to a different level of consciousness, um, the body is the easiest thing to grab onto, and the breath is always there. So coming back to the breath is probably the best recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. So this is re- so. So um, um, I felt concentrated, um, but then I became aware of of a lot of um, physical sensations, and I think you're kind of wondering about what's the relationship there between the concentration and the and the awareness of these distractions. So. Um, um, again, nothing's wrong. This is this is absolutely typical practice. Is is um, to bring your concentrated attention to something, but then it wanders off. Even even if it's good awareness, it's it's off it's off target. The question is the target. And so when when if you're a beginner, um, you need guidance. You need the voice. Um, you know the, our audio files that that are part of the training. Um, the, the voice you know brings you back, and so. In this exercise, it was my voice, and so I was directing you to here and then to there and to there. And so it, you, the, the goal would be you bring your concentration where I'm directing it, and then when you notice, oh, I'm, my, um, you know, my, my belt feels tight or something, uh, you just notice that, oh, but it is a distraction because I really want to be, Dr. Bros, we're on, the, we're on the, you know, the, the shoulders now, so I come back to the shoulders. That is a constant... Um, uh, phenomenon. You know, your mind is always looking for trouble. It always wants to go somewhere else. So you just keep bringing it back. Except, and this requires, you have to have some training under your belt before you can do this well, what we call wise discrimination. And that is, um, 
if you have some very strong emotional content come up, or maybe you have some very significant physical sensation like pain coming up, then, and I'm saying, oh, go to your shoulders and feel your this and that, and this thing is screaming at you, then at some point, the thing that's screaming at you, you drop me, you drop the guidance, and, and you bring your mindful attention to that thing that is screaming for attention. Yeah. So that's, that's part of the art of this once you've got some training under your belt. Yeah, um, yeah last one. Okay, so, so the question is, um, so I was raised mindful meant, you know, sort of paying attention to others, being aware of what's around me. And so this self, this inward-directed mindfulness exercise was difficult. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. Um, so, so just that is interesting already, you know. You, you more naturally apply your attention to others. So that's beautiful and maybe a problem at some level. You know, there could be a downside to it as well as tremendous upside. You know. So just, to, oh, that's interesting. This is, this is the, what you learn with mindfulness practice. You just learn about yourself. Um, I would say for someone like you, um, you need a, a, a more controlled environment in the beginning of your practice to almost so that your mind can't do that as easily, right? Because you're in a room full of people and there's all kinds of little things going on. So, but if you're at home alone and no cell phone and the door's closed and the cat can't get in and you know, it's really protected time and space, it, it would be to, to direct the practice inward and then notice what comes up for you. Is it difficult? Is it delightful? Is it like, oh, this feels so good. I haven't done this my whole life, you know, or just noticing, just noticing what comes up. Because it sounds like you are doing mindfulness. It's just, Elsa, do you remember the, the quality of attention called beginner's mind? So for you, um, this is one way in which that's hard. You, you already have a concept and even like a, almost like a practice of mindfulness, what you call mindfulness. And it's different than this. So, so it's hard Beginner's mind, the idea of beginner's mind is coming to something as if you've never experienced it or seen it before. And if you have, I love the, it's from um, Suzuki Roshi, Japanese Zen, founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. And uh, he says um, in his book, um, uh, in the beginner's mind, the possibilities are infinite. In the expert's mind, the possibilities are few. Because if you've thought a lot about something, in this case for you, it's mindfulness means attending to what's outside. Um, then you, you, you come to certain conclusions and you, you, you close other possibilities and you have, you have, a, you have kind of a conclusion or a, a, a story or a, a framework of what that is. And so to, to do something, for, to do it again with fresh eyes is, is, is challenging. So for you, I would recommend, um, um, first of all, it would be, certainly be, interesting for you. You'll learn something about you. I don't know what, but something's there. And then it might be really pleasant, and it might be a kind of a balancing if you're naturally always attending like outward. Um, you know, at some point in one's life, that if you're only doing that, there's, you know, then you'll suffer. So, so it, it, it's, it could be a rich area for you to, to actually try to focus on yourself and see what, see what comes up. You know? Yeah. Um, okay, let me just do my last slide. So, so uh, although I love talking, I wish I wish we had more time. Okay, so what are we? This is special. This is not this. I know we talk about medical research and mindfulness is a great tool and it helps your brain and all that. But but let's take a step back 
as human beings and look at our experience of being alive for this short time, this life that we have. And what is, what is mindfulness in that context? So first of all, and I just put together some random thoughts because I felt like, you know, the, whenever we do research on mindfulness, we talk about mindfulness, we, we miss these really big points. So first of all, your attention is so powerful. Some would say it's the most powerful tool or, or uh, capacity that you have. Your attention, right? You're, you're, you're attending to me right now, some of you anyway. You know, you're paying it, you're listening, <laughs> you're listening, you're taking me in. Um, you might go home and, and there might be someone you live with or someone you love and, and you, maybe you're going to attend to them or maybe you're not. You know, maybe it's, you're not, it's just automatic pilot and, um, um, or, um, or your pet, your dog, um, um, or your job. Um, so, so your attention is very powerful. Think of how a child responds when you give your full attention and if it's a mindful attention, it has these open, kind of fluid qualities. Kids and dogs love it. Um, the other thing is the importance of the present moment. This is your life. So you're missing some of it. And I'm missing some of mine. And that's terrible. You, you know, there's a, there's a Mary Oliver poem. Oh, I forgot to mention we do a lot of poetry in the MBSR program. It's really, I love it. And I, I thank John Kabat-Zinn for, for making that a part of it. We've all copied him uh, uh, since 1979. And, and there's one poem that's so powerful, Mary Oliver, The Summer Day. And the last line of the poem, tell me what, it, uh, tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So whenever I'm, you know, have some difficult decision or, or, or maybe it's something that's not even very important, but it's, I'm taking a lot of time deciding. If I think of that line, it, it just fixes everything. So, so we, have these, this, we have this one wild and precious life. And um, you almost, you could say you live longer. If you pay attention to more moments of your life, if you're present for more of your life, it's almost like you lived longer. <laughs> Uh, there is some profound link here. I mean, obviously, the origins of mindfulness are from a spiritual practice. Um, but, but even in the secular format of the mindfulness-based stress reduction, there's, there's strong kind of spiritual um, implications. And, in fact, I did a study um, on, on health professional students here at UCSF. So we put all the uh, dental, medical, pharmacy, PT, nursing, we put them all together, and we did the mindfulness with them. And we measured all kinds of things. And just like we had hoped and expected, the depression and anxiety improved very much. For the, and these students were really distressed. It's really tough here for these students. Um, and um, so we're very pleased. But you know what? And that, that kind of is a pattern of all the other research. So we were pleased. It kind of corroborated previous research. And, but you know what moved the most was, was an index of spirituality that we measured by a lot. That was what changed the most. And that was measuring things like how do you feel about the meaning of your life? How do you feel in relation to others or into something larger than yourself? Um, How do you feel about death? How comfortable are you with death? Um, Things like this. Not theistic, but spiritual questions. So I think just slowing down and, and paying close attention to our experience inevitably 
for a lot of people leads to these kind of spiritual qualities, spiritual dimensions. It's designed to help us cope with difficulty. And that's not just stuff in the medical studies, you know. It's the disappointment from, you know, whatever, you you failed a test or something or, or, you know, someone stole your car or whatever. It's so that's not, you know, we're not talking about depression. We're talking about the, the, the ups and downs of life and, and the, the challenges, physical, psychological, whatever. So this is, this is human suffering is a pretty important topic. And, and this is a method. How many methods are there, really, that, that, that can help you through? The flip side is it can actually enhance your contact with life. And sometimes just clearing away the clutter, you know, all these thoughts about, oh, what am I, I've got to do the deadline for this and the taxes and blah, blah, blah. You miss the incredible spring we're having, you know, all these amazing flowers all going at once. Or, or I, remember, I remember when I was a resident, and this is before work hours were restricted, so be in the hospital, you know, like crazy for 36 hours, then come out do, do, for the first time, come outside. And I remember oh, feeling the, the, the air on my cheek, and I remember just loving that. You know, and mindfulness, I noticed, would allow me to sort of enhance, to just be more aware of that, the little things, the, um, the things that we're overlooking now. Just, and, you know, the breath can be very pleasurable. You might have noticed. I don't know. It, it's, it, it doesn't, it's, it could just, just settling and just breathing and not doing anything else. That can be pleasurable. Just not running the stories that we always run. Just, just that break. Oh, and then last of all, so there's some connection that I can't completely, I'm, I'm still trying to discover myself, but there's some profound connection between mindfulness and love. And um, my favorite author on this is Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the Vietnamese uh, uh, Buddhist monk. And um, part of it harkens back to this first bullet, is your attention. If you, if you love someone or some animal, and you bring mindful f- attention to that person or being, it's just like watering a flower. I mean, they just, they just flourish and vice versa. So, and then I think the other, the other connection is, is that it, um, it's a, it really gives you, it, it really can enhance your, your expression of love. So your, your, own, your own clarity about what's going on for you. Oh, I'm really so um, uh, appreciative of you right now. Or I'm really, I, I'm feeling, I'm feeling great, such great affection for you or some, uh, compassion or whatever. It's, it's, it allows you to sort of know what's going on and, and uh, express it, I think, better. So, so keeps you younger, um, makes your brain thicker, gets you more in touch with love and dogs. It's good. It's good. I highly recommend it. All right, so that's it. I'll stick around for, for questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.